And we are back. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And uh, as always, it's my favorite part of the show. Uh, And we got a great one planned for you today. Wanted to do a year in review. Looking back on on the year that has been. Want to look forward into what we see coming into the next year. And the guy that I had on, I thought about this very carefully. And uh, for some of our other guests <laughs> and, and, and colleagues of mine, do not be offended. I just thought – don't be offended that I didn't pick you. Uh, I just thought our, I thought our guest today was unique, in a unique position to be able to help us kind of dig through things because I wanted to deal with – I wanted to have somebody on that had much more than an amateur knowledge of finance and economics and things of that nature – but I also wanted to have on somebody that looks at things through a, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, a philosophical lens. Because I, I think that that is going to carry as much weight going forward regarding central bank policy and political interventions into markets and, and all of the stuff that we've seen over the last two and a half to three years. You know, that that side of things, that that political side of things, that cultural side of things in my opinion, has played as big a role, if not bigger role, than uh, you know spreadsheets and fundamentals and all of those things. So uh, without further ado, I want to re- uh, welcome Dimitri Kafinis back to the show. Dimitri, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Zach. I always enjoy being on your show. And, and Dimitri, for those of you that don't know, Dimitri is the proprietor of, and I'm not saying this just to shine him on, but truly my favorite podcast, Hidden Forces. Uh, and and before we get going, I'm going to say this several more times. But if you don't subscribe to his podcast, do. Um, I think that. And again, I'm not pumping sunshine, Dimitri. I just think you're doing some of the most important and relevant interviews with very significant players. And I've noticed how your pull uh, for guests seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're landing a lot of great ones. So before we get into the conversation, one of the things I want to ask you is. Um, I've been thrilled watching it grow, man. It must be a wild ride. Have you noticed that as well? Are you getting access to, to, you know, I, I, I don't want to say better, not better, but you know, more and more people kind of higher up the chain that typically would not maybe hop onto a podcast. Yeah, I I think that's, that's, that's true. Uh, and I think that's partly true because, you know, the more people you have within certain communities, the more they spread the word to other people and, it's just very easy to get them on. What I would say, though, that has changed from a guest perspective is less uh, less so that I'm getting better guests on because even in, in the first few years, I had people like Howard Marks on the podcast right. and uh, and other folks. And I think the, the bigger difference now is that people reach out to me to come on the show, and that's a big deal because it means that I've got an abundance of guests coming my way who I can filter through – and it's much less work on me to book guests now than it used to be. Got it. Got it. Which has got to be a huge relief. Because that was probably to- – to- Totally. Did you- it's still – listen, it's still – guest booking is still uh, one of the toughest, if not the toughest part of the job because of all the logistics. And I have a really great uh, personal assistant who I hand the football off to once I get a, uh, a guest sort of locked locked in. But that initial sort of um, research part, because the other thing with guest booking is what you'll tend to find is a lot of podcasts, a lot of programs in our space in particular, 
But I guess this is also true in other places. I mean, I listen to Rebel Wisdom, for example. I think a lot of times they'll have some of the same people on. That's a great podcast also, I should say, um, is that they recycle the same guests. And that right. one thing I really don't like doing is recycling the same guests. I do like having people on more than once over, you know, if it's been like a few years or something like that. Um, it's, it's, it, but only if they're like really great. But there's something about spe- – it isn't just the fact that I think it's great to expose people to new uh, guests and to myself to new guests. But also speaking to somebody new, it gets me more excited. I don't know. There's something more interesting about talking to somebody that I haven't spoken with before. Yeah. No, and I know I know what you mean. It kind of it gets the gets the juices flowing. You know what I mean? That, that – um... Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what we're talking about. But so anyway, man, it's just been it, it's been awesome listening to. I just feel like you're right on point, and I think this is kind of a jumping off point for us because I want to start talking about the recent interview you had with Coffeezilla. What what is his name? Is it Steve? Was that his real name? Steve Stephen Finn Dyson. Yeah, he he was fascinating, and he's a younger guy, isn't he? He made. Some... I think he's like thirty, late twenties, thirty, something like that. Yeah, he's an old soul, man. That was uh, interesting listening to. Very talented kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I do look. I do feel like I'm forty, and he, uh, but he has that kind of. There's a kid quality to him. Uh, I found him actually very relatable in that sense, though he's much more successful than I was at his age because he's. <laughs> He's riding that that YouTube star wave. It's like there's a, a new avenue of exposure has opened up for uh, certain types of content creators on YouTube now that didn't exist back when I was getting my start. You know, I started in blogging, and then I had a radio program, and then I had a TV program, and the TV show had programming on the internet. But at that time, you know, internet native programs was like the Young Turks. Yeah, you know what I mean, and like that's not or Max Kaiser at RT or something like right. that, and. Now it's a, it's across the board, and they have phenomenal um, video, and you can see the ones that are particularly talented and have a really strong sense of camera presence in a way that's very native to to YouTube are really successful. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating to watch. I, I what I was impressed by is the way he dug into this, and this is kind of a jumping off point because to me this 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 collision between culture and finance. I don't I don't think you can see it summed up any better than what is going on in crypto, the attitudes around crypto, the behavior around crypto. You you coined the term financial nihilism that we discussed the last time that you were on the show. I, I if somebody asked what that was, I would just point them to what's going on in crypto right now, right? Mm. And I was and, and getting back to Steve, I was just impressed usually to do that kind of research and dig that deep, uh, you gotta have scars. You know, the average 29, 30-year-old isn't going to do mm-hmm. that. And I was just sitting there listening to him going, man, you sound like you've been at this a while. You know, you sound like you got some gray hair. But anyway, and, and this, guys, if you listen to my podcast, and we've talked about the crypto space, go listen to this interview that Dimitri does with Steve. Um, I think it's going to open up a lot of things. But, again, this is a great jumping-off point. After you did that interview, and you and I, again, we've discussed the craziness of crypto and all the different things I think the stage that we're at in the crypto one right now, in my opinion, you know, holds within it the key um, – and maybe I'm being too melodramatic – but the key or, or the code, if you will, the understanding a lot of things going on culturally right now. And personally for me, as perplexing as I've seen the attitudes and so much of the action in crypto, what we're seeing today has me the most perplexed. And I'll start with – it is shocking to me 
that all of these exchanges haven't collapsed via people just pulling their money off of them, right? Um, how, how do you explain or how do you rationalize to yourself the fact that there are still billions of dollars of investment money in these exchanges? And, is, and, and how, does that, how does that fit with your financial nihilism uh, uh, framework um, that you've discussed so many times. Do you think what we're seeing going on in crypto right now is that financial nihilism? And if not, what is that? Tell- Dimitri, I'm just shocked. I look at the fraud going on and the obvious nature of all of it and how in, in your face it is and how there are still people supporting it, how they've still got their money on the exchanges. How do you how do you make heads or tails of this? Well, uh, one problem in answering that question, Zach, is that uh, there's so much that that I don't know. I don't know how much of it is knowable and how much of it is just that I don't know it. So first of all, I don't know how much money is actually on the exchanges. I think a lot – one of the things we do know is a lot of people have taken their money off, and that's one of the concerns with whether it's Binance or some of the other other exchanges, which is how liquid are they and what, what are their state – I think the bigger sort of question or the bigger thing that strikes me is that people would leave their money on in the first place and that – um, people feel comfortable having their money with a company that is at, as whether it's Binance or some of these other companies in the space are as uh, opaque, you know what I mean, as as what we've seen. So I think that that that's a bigger concern for me. And again, Tether is not an exchange; Bitfinex is, but. Uh, Tether is the classic example of this. I don't know if you heard my episode with James Block, but we kind of we kind of covered this a bit. And you know, I've been Tether's a company that company, whatever you Tether Limited is the company. But the the thing is that it feels like there is um, a, a really large criminal network that exists within the crypto ecosystem, and uh, it's just it's hard to believe that people are willing to rely on some of these counterparties to um, either liquefy the space or to transact through in some cases. Yeah, no, the, the, I was having a discussion last night. I, I was over at some family house for a, for a Christmas dinner and I've got an uncle that, that is an investor and we just spent some time discussing this very topic. Um, maybe it's a lack of understanding of counterparty risk. What has been so bizarre for me to watch in this whole thing is how some very experienced knowledgeable investors have gotten caught up in this. And and I'm not I'm not trying to throw dirt on anybody. I've made plenty of bad calls. I'm probably one of the only people that does a show that dedicated an entire episode to the things I've gotten wrong. Right? So I'm not you know, I'm I'm I, I joke all the time. I'm the only guy on Trader that's had losing trades or Twitter that's had losing trades, right? But I look at a guy like Mike Novogratz, who was, I, I, I to my understanding, you know, a billionaire from Goldman Sachs prior to his involvement in crypto. The guy was getting a Luna tattoo on his shoulder like two weeks before the Luna implosion. And again, I'm not saying that to take a shot at Mike Novogratz. What I'm saying is I've watched this whole thing and it is just perplexing to me It that a guy like that – you know, I just – from the very beginning and you talked about this a lot. To me, the whole crypto field just looked like the most fertile soil for fraud I'd ever seen. Well, so I think I definitely think there's a lot of complacency going on. Again, I I can speak anecdotally. I think 
one of the things that I've seen is, you know, when you make a lot of money and you make it very easily, it's you have a different sense of like, oh, I left $50,000 on this exchange or $100,000 on that exchange. I mean, what I mean on that exchange, sorry. Well, I, I don't know if that that's actually not a – I'm thinking about it more in terms of just like people have made a lot of money in this space. And I wasn't thinking about it as much as the exchange thing. I'm actually thinking about it more in terms of – I don't know. I mean – it is weird, man, because uh, the thing that's tough about this conversation is I'm not one of those people who thinks that, quote, crypto is a scam. I actually don't. You know, I think my my very sort of um, TLDR take on this is that – and I've talked about this recently on one of my episodes. I think it was the one with James Block – is that crypto refers to two things. It refers to distributed ledger technology, public – which is mostly public blockchain technology – and it refers to a philosophy of, quote, decentralization, which itself is a very fuzzy concept and not very very well developed. And both have um, – well, the technology itself is compromised in the sense that it's had fundamental scaling challenges. It, it remains to be seen whether or not those, at least for blockchain DLTs, will prove fatal uh, or too complex to overcome – in the in the existing in the existing ecosystem funding model of tokenization, in other words, again, something that I've talked about is that crypto has relied on private funding at a, at a very seed stage for a foundational technology. The internet protocols didn't have private funding to get them started. It was government funding incubated in academia, so you had a very different kind of um, you had a very different uh, ecosystem for being able to experiment and getting things right. And then things got commercialized in the uh, in the very late 80s, very early 1990s. So you have these fundamental technological challenges, and those challenges and the, and the abundance of liquidity and available money coming into the space caused people, I think, to compromise on the philosophy. And then they went out and, uh, you know, were more than happy to offload the – computational uh, computational the transactional requirements needed to speculate to these centralized exchanges and uh, to create all sorts of tokens and create communities and turn everything into basically a giant money party and uh, I think that caused a lot of neglect uh, on the building side and so that and I think that's kind of where I don't know if that, that's a direct answer to your question, but I think what crypto just became, which just became a giant wealth extraction mechanism, not because it's inherent to crypto, because a lot of people think that they're like, oh, this is just these are just, you know, um, uh, just scam coins. But I think because it just became so much easier to to throw parties, um, you know, uh, and uh, build communities and get people excited and turn these things into giant casinos. No, and I couldn't. <clears throat> I couldn't agree with you more. I, and I feel very much the same way. Um, I, I still remember the first day. Well, I actually remember the day I was watching CNBC, and and somebody bought a pizza. It was the first transaction ever done with crypto. It was using Bitcoin, right? Um, and I was fascinated by it because at that point I was so re- I was I, I was so revolted by what I was seeing the Fed do. And um, I, I will ad- I admit that at that time I did not have a good understanding of the plumbing of the system, um, you know, the, the, the support, the inherent support underneath the dollar. I was an inflationista. I thought gold was mm-hmm. going to go, you know, to 4,000. 
Um, obviously done a lot of work. And so from the very beginning, I've been at the very least sympathetic, if not, you know, cheering crypto on the idea, the ethos behind it. Right. Um, and then so I so I'm all for it. And one, one of the arguments, one of the things I've said is, look, I am cheering Bitcoin on. I love the idea. I love the philosophy driving it. Um, again, I love the ethos behind it. And I just very much doubt the supremacy of it because I just figured governments wouldn't wouldn't uh, would, didn't want and weren't going to allow central banks were not going to allow competition for the creation of currency. And that was kind of the lens I looked at it from. And then I just kind of watched it turn into an absolute, like you said, a, a, a drunken party over the last two or three years. Um, and now I look at it and, you know, I think Bitcoin deserves, in my opinion, to be set aside. We don't own any. I, I, it's not anything I want to be invested in at this point. But I'm wondering, I know for a fact good technology is going to come out of this, right, that there's going to be winning technology. There's going to be great use. I think that there's incredible potential for NFTs and different things like that. What do you see coming out of this? What do you, I, I think my hope is anyway, that we'll look back at this period of time and it will be somewhat of a clean out. Right. Um, and those winning technologies will emerge. What, mm -hmm. what do you think, what do you think is going to come out of this? Where do you, where do you think this is headed now? Uh, do you think the days of the, the, garbage coins and uh, and crazy speculation and stuff is over for now do you think it's got another run or or are we on the cusp of another another evolution and step forward in crypto via all the carnage that's taking place well as far as like are, are, are we done with all the speculation uh and i think what you mean is the kind of crazy crazy yeah. crazy speculation that we have seen probably um at least probably for the foreseeable future um but I don't know kind of long term. You know, in terms of crypto, my foray into crypto, my real foray into crypto was 26, 2017, 2016, 2017. And it was inspired first by the same kind of excitement around, quote, decentralization, the recognition that the Internet itself had become increasingly centralized and that crypto promised the promised or uh, offered the opportunity to do to the um, to the database what the internet did to the communication layer of the internet to make it possible to have decentralized agreement and as I uh, spent more time looking into it I became increasingly pessimistic about blockchain databases ability to scale and uh, this was at the time when ethereum that Vitalik Buterin and other people in the ethereum community, I actually had Vitalik and I had Zach uh, – not Zach. I had Vitalik and uh, Vlad Zamfir who was leading uh, one of the two POS initiatives. I think it was uh, – there was – at the time there was uh, – gosh, I can't remember. It was POS Casper and then it was uh, Correct by Construction. Anyway, there were two different versions, one that um, Vitalik was working on and one that Vlad was working on. And I spent a lot of time. I mean, if you, if you go back and you listen to my episode with Vitalik Buterin, it, it's like, wow, I really sounded, sounded like I knew what I was talking about. Um, <laughs> I know. it's it's And I because I really dig into that stuff and I geek out and I really enjoy it and I like to challenge myself. So I came to the view that like the, the, the various solutions like Plasma and POS and sharding, database sharding were complicated by the the architecture of blockchain databases 
and the fact that there is no finality in blockchain, or there there hasn't been. In other words, there is no point of agreement that you can speak to deterministically. Everything is probabilistic, and that when I spoke to other really smart engineers who had doubts, they put forward really interesting arguments, compelling arguments as to why that was going to be a problem. Uh, and I actually was an inv- am an investor, was and am an investor in one particular base layer technology that I was really bullish on and uh, and whose founders I uh, are really qualified, uh, successful individuals and entrepreneurs in their own right. And uh, while they've done very well and it was a really great investment – they didn't do it. It hasn't, at least this far, done anywhere near as well as I had hoped for. And that it wasn't because I was naive and believed that tech is everything. And because that wasn't the problem. I think the real challenge that competing base layers have had to Ethereum is the network effects that Ethereum has. And this kind of speaks to what I was saying earlier, which is that you know, the suite of internet protocols that it gave us what we think of today as the internet were developed in this non-competitive, hyper-collaborative environment. And in that kind of an environment, the incentive is to produce the best product, the best technology. It isn't – there aren't people that are that are anchored and incentivized to push out better things because they're in early on this other thing. And what's happened with Bitcoin and Ethereum – and it's less of a problem with Bitcoin, at least insofar as if you just care about Bitcoin as a, quote, store of value, basically a Ponzi, a Ponzi with giant network effects. Um, that's less of a problem for Bitcoin, but it's a problem for anything else, a problem for anything that you actually want to use because you want the best technology to win out. And these aren't like marginal differences. This isn't like Blu-ray versus HD HD DVD or VHS versus Betamax. You know what I mean? Where there are various trade-offs, and even the 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 pros and cons aren't that big. These are really big differences. So, um, I I kind of that was kind of demoralizing for me because I saw that the premium was on building a community, and if you could really build a great community, so so a couple of things to differentiate again. Ethereum already had a great community organically; it had network effects. But then these competing base layers that were competing with Ethereum and 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 getting huge amounts of speculative investment, they were able to do that based on how much excitement they were able to generate, and that really got that kind of demoralized me. Um, because also excitement attracts regulator oversight, and you know if you if you're really responsible, you don't want regulators up your ass. So you're trying to do um, you're trying to be you're trying to be careful with all those things and with people's money, et cetera. So that was one thing, and then the the thing that kind of like um, really set stopped me from investing in the industry was the the whole DeFi summer speculative mania, and. I just got to a place where I just felt that the space had become largely uninvestable. Now, there are some really smart people in this space. Uh, listeners of Hidden Forces know that I'm a huge fan of the framework guys, uh, Vance Spencer and Michael Anderson. They're really smart. These guys are really smart. Um, they're really hard workers. They are passionate. They understand the space from a native standpoint. They spend a lot of time actually using the applications. And they were very early investors in DeFi. They're big believers in it. I'm skeptical about DeFi only because that requires a lot of work. You know, like, uh, again, to go back to Ethereum, I am skeptical. I don't – I'm not. it's not a foregone conclusion to me that Ethereum is going to work out at all as a scalable, scalable public distributed ledger technology, number one. Number two, 
man, these DeFi protocols, software is buggy on its own. On top of that, you're now introducing the same types of complexities that you get in financial markets. I just don't know how these different coins work. It would take so much time for me to understand it. But they, they've also talked about blockchain-based gaming. I think that makes sense, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the use of tokens to incentivize in, um, to incentivize gaming communities. And, it's a, and that's the thing where, like, so what if the thing, you know, crashes? It's a game. Right. You know, I, I, so I think that's also important where you can experiment. Um, but, yeah, so I think that there are opportunities. It remains to be seen where those opportunities will emerge. Uh, I'm very bullish on... Lots of real-world use cases for this kind of tech, but I, again, I don't know what Ethereum will be able to do, and uh, so, yeah, that's kind of where I fall, I guess. That yeah, was my answer. No, that, that's no, that's great stuff, man. And and uh, what, what are your really quick before we move on? Because this is not, I don't want to spend all of our time talking about crypto. But one of the things that has resonated with me is the NFT space. I, I, I see there being tremendous. Um, and, and square me away if I'm wrong, but I see there being tremendous potential value in that technology. And one of the one of the things I was thinking about in terms uh, of NFTs was take artists, for instance, right? Um, you have a painting. You can sell it via an NFT. The, the piece of art could be kept in a, in, a, in a warehouse somewhere, right? And then every single time that, that NFT of that piece of art gets sold, it's a transfer of ownership. And then that original artist, you can bake into the NFT, from my understanding, a kickback to the original artist every time there's a transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, is my understanding of that correct? And do you agree with me that that, that will – looks like a, a very poten- or potentially a big winner coming out of this whole you know again it's not crypto but it's it's spun out of that exact that same technology and that's those same advances do you do you see it similar to me or do you think I've got it wrong on the nft side of things well uh i mean nfts are basically digital rights management but without everything managed on a single database right so it's decentralized digital rights management i don't know how much that's worth uh, from a market share standpoint. Uh, so it could potentially be quite a bit. Uh, it's a very simple, straightforward use case, which I love. There's also the other challenge, which is not just uh, assessing what the opportunity is, which is much easier to do. The more difficult thing to do is perhaps to determine how to how to properly monetize that or take advantage of it that's a that's typically a challenge in crypto which uh we we the industry speaks of as tokenomics how do you really um how do you properly build your ecosystem so that you can really extract as much value as possible at the same time making the product as usable as possible again this brings us back to the issue I was talking about before, which is that teams have invariably focused much more on how, how to extract as much possi- po- money as possible because the primary use case of crypto has been financial extraction and um, and Ponzi, Ponzi wealth creation. So, you know, DRM, digital rights management, the way it works right now, let's say if on Apple is really bad. Uh, I absolutely can see how this would be useful, and it's one of the, it's it's kind of one of the most fundamental core aspects of um of decentralized ledger technology and it's not it's not particularly impacted by latency and throughput considerations because 
you don't need to have those those things don't need to happen in real time it's not about the, the number of transactions you can fit through a pipe once you get it once you get your particular nft on the on a, on on the ledger what matters is that it's there and that it's secure it's not so much that you can take it on and off in the five times in the course of five seconds you know what i mean yeah yeah all right so pivoting a little bit in this whole year in review which is it's probably we're looking back a little bit more than a year but i want to pivot a little bit and i want to stick to this theme of trying to wrap my head around and again i I, I was thinking to myself as I was driving it today, that this is going to be as much of a therapy session for me as it is going to be an interview, right? Just trying to bounce things off you and kind of get your take on different things. But flipping over to that, uh, the, the political world now uh, and trying to understand what's going on there. And, and I feel like there's somewhat of a similar dynamic playing out in, in the political world that kind of rhymes with the whole financial nihilism trend. And one of the things – there's so many different aspects in politics that we could focus on over the last four or five years, for God's sake. But one of them, interestingly, that, that summed up my confusion or, or having a hard time wrapping my hands around or my head around what's currently going on was the whole Twitter files release, right? And mm -hmm. the knowledge that came out, the proof that came out that the FBI was paying – Twitter, right? Millions of dollars to do their bidding. Um, and watching all of these these releases that, that Musk has made via Twitter recently and having it really kind of unveil what I think so many people thought was happening anyway, um, which seemed obvious to so many people. And I'm, I'm even saying out of the political lens, right? There's people on both sides of the political aisle that have agreed that at the very least some serious chicanery and editing and you know, muting and, you know, for political reasons was going on. I don't really see this as a political debate. But recently I saw several responses from pretty widely followed blue check people uh, in Twitter regarding the Twitter releases. And they were baking it all down to, so you think it's a scandal because uh, people didn't want nude pictures of Hunter Biden on Twitter. And I was so blown away by that take. And it reminds me of the way people have reacted to criticism in the crypto world, this total dismissal, right, of, of what seems to be staring them in the face. And from my perspective, it, it, you, if you were looking at this whole Twitter thing and you thought it came down to blocking nude pictures of Hunter Biden, I, I just I, I was just blown away by that take. And it seems like there's and it exists on both sides. We both know it. But this. Uh, willingness to completely ignore reality, this willingness mm. to completely ignore what is happening right in front of them, maybe because it doesn't align with them politically. And, and again, this this isn't new, right? People have always been tribal. But I just find this – again, I keep going back to your term financial nihilism. I feel like I see that same type of attitude in so many aspects of the culture. What do you – how do you – how do you wrap your head around that? And do and, and again, it's a wide ranging question. But do you agree? Were, were you did you see some of those takes? And were you kind of blown away that that was their distillation, if you will, of that whole scenario, and that more people weren't shocked? Uh, for instance, the three and a half million dollar payments Twitter. I I'm not surprised that people that was Twitter th that was Twitter thread the last one, right? I haven't had a chance to read the, the Twitter file yeah. seven. I believe yeah. that was in the seven. Yeah, that was the one that was the most recently released. And again, wasn't shocking to me. 
um, probably wasn't shocking to you, but I continually be I continue to be amazed by what people aren't freaking out about, and conversely, what they are. It just seems like we're in mm-hmm. the upside down. Uh, what 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 is your again wide ranging question? But how, how how do you square that? Yeah, so I didn't I haven't read the last one. And Twitter file the Twitter file story for me has become like every other mainstream media story. Uh, once it gets grabbed by uh, you know Fox and MSNBC and blah blah blah, I just like the Russia collusion story, just like the Hunter Biden story. Both of those stories, when they got picked up by the mainstream media and they became pet projects, I just checked out. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, that's what the Twitter files has become. It's become, in my view, another one of these. Uh, partisan dumping grounds and it wasn't handled uh, properly you know i have i don't have, I have very low opinion of elon Same. i've always had a i've i mean not always i've had a low opinion of elon a publicly low opinion of elon since 2018 and um not because i'm interested in having a uh, making any conversation about elon it just he makes himself about everything and that's a whole nother conversation yeah. about the power of celebrity and the, the occult, occult of uh, personality and the culture of narcissism and how um, we are in a moment in time in American cultural and political life where people are attracted to that kind of energy. And uh, that's that does not bode well for us. So that's a separate conversation. We can get into that if you want. But um, so that's that that's to say that I was excited when Twitter files started out and we started seeing the first thread by Matt. I reached out to Matt to have him on the show. He, um, of course, like very early on, had restraints on what he could and couldn't say and how he could participate. Uh, At some point, I hope to have him on. He's already been on the show twice before. But I I quickly became discouraged from what felt like, again, it felt like another political project. It was politically, commercially motivated by Musk. They didn't do a good job of kind of creating bipartisan buy in of opening the database to everybody, et cetera. There was also with with the Twitter files a kind of uh, dramatic reveal around it that just didn't fit the evidence. Uh, and the evidence wasn't surprising for me. Like no. I've been talking about the problems with social media for years. It was very useful for me to see the uh, just how ad hoc some of the process was or the lack of process. I do not think it was a nothing burger. I thought people that were taking that position were, again, not surprising because yeah. so much is partisan, just like every other stupid thing today. Uh, so I think it's not as big a deal as what the right is making it out to be. It's a much bigger deal than what the left is making it out to be. And it has nothing to do with anything that Either one of those sites has even talked about, right. in my view. Um, what it, for me, like this is really about. Okay, so what do we do about this? Because right. this is a huge problem. It's not just about the Hunter Biden laptop, you know. It's and it's not about censorship. The right has this framing that it's about censorship. Everything that social media algorithms do is select for importance, and they apply a normative framework to every single decision. And most of what gets suppressed or amplified is not done by an individual person. So these are there. There are there's an objective function that these that these quote again. I'm I'm not a social media expert, so I'm I'm using these these terms in a very um, sort of rudimentary way. But the algorithms that 
inform the outcomes that we see on social media and the way that information get dis- gets displayed are selecting for us for are are being driven by an objective function in the case of these platforms that that function is to oh, at the highest level it's to generate more revenue and the business model is advertising and the way that you get more you sell more advertising is by driving engagement and and in and, and, and driving up clicks and it just so happens that the way that you that that ends up happening is by pissing people off it's by giving people more of the stuff that you know plugs right into their brainstem and it's not because that we're select it's not because the engineers at Facebook are trying to piss everybody off it's just that it happens that that that's what naturally emerges when you train the dog and you put the the thing in front of Sparky and you say Sparky go find Peter he fell down a well well the, he's going to run after and he's going to whatever jump anyway so I just I think the whole framing is wrong, and it's again feeding into the same political uh, divisions in the country, and it doesn't serve us, and it's really depressing. And I I wanted to cover it. I started with uh, wanted to bring on Matt, and then I really struggled on who I wanted to bring, and I ended up with Renee Duresta, and I thought that was actually a really really constructive, interesting conversation. Of course, I got a bunch of people that unsubscribed because they just uh, you know it uh, what's it called it triggered them, you know. What what so, what what aspect of it triggered them? Was there a consistency between the people that unsubscribed? Ah, uh, man, let me. You know, uh, uh, I'm trying. Was there a consistency? There was probably there a was. Theme? I you know I, I think that uh, well the the one I think one of the things that people have the people that did unsubscribe said is that you know they come to hidden forces uh, for. Uh, uh, an open mind. I don't. I don't. Again, I don't remember exactly what they said because open-minded perspective or something like that the suggestion that somehow I'm I'm closed-minded, I'm biased, that uh, I only see the left perspective or whatever. It was more kind of kind of that stuff, and I, I just I don't know. I mean, I I obviously I don't agree with that. I I think what, there was one. I, I I don't respond to emails like that necessarily. There was one listener that reached out, and I actually took the time to go back and forth with him because he was saying that he feels like I've become more closed-minded and I'm not giving the other side. And that's um, – and so one of the things that I challenged him on was like I don't believe in the other side. You know, like I don't uh, I don't go into a conversation with a, with a sense of, okay, what are the two sides – and let me make sure I show you both of them because then I'm stuck inside of someone else's paradigm. Right. What I try to do is just get the most, uh, you know, um, cl- best perspective possible. And, oh, and I remember someone brought up Peter McCullough. I had brought up the, the, doc- the guy Peter McCullough who was on Joe Rogan's podcast. He's a doctor. He was um, one of the strong advocates for the use of ivermectin. And I said that he's not a doctor. He's an activist. And let me actually talk about that a second. Uh, so I'm I'm someone that comes from a family of doctors who are not conformists, who believe that science is made uh, at the by frontline workers, by frontline doctors who don't have time to publish their studies in peer-reviewed journals, and they're highly skeptical of official bodies and 
Uh, my dad, for example, is is someone who thinks one no child at a hospital. My dad's really smart, very successful physician, a perinatal diagnostic surgeon who works with high risk pregnancies, and he's been practicing medicine for forty years, um, actually longer, depending on when you start the clock, and uh, he doesn't believe that you should get any vaccines for your kid the moment they're born in the hospital. For so, As an example, he thinks you should wait until the kid's immune system has gotten stronger before you, you get vaccinated. So there's a huge discrepancy between his, his guidance and the CDC and the health agencies would say, get the kids vaccinated right away in the hospital. Well, the reason they say that is because they it's easier. Do they get it done? But it's actually not what's best for the babies. So that's just one uh, example. I can give you a bunch of. He's also skeptical about the general use, general vaccinations. Um, so, in other words, I don't come from this like uh, naive non skepticism, but I also don't believe in the in this cult that exists on the right. So the left is woke, right? They've got their woke ideologies. The new right is woke. Okay, I'm not going to curse. I was be like as. But I'm not going to curse because I got criticism last time. But they are super woke. They think – again, they. Um, it's not everybody. And like, you know, I identify I, – I, I, some people think I'm more right. Some people think I'm more left depending on what the issue is. They – a lot of these folks, they think that they're smart because they're – they figured it out. That the con is whatever the authorities say. So whatever the CDC says – Whatever Joe Biden says, they're going to – whoa, oh, I know he's full of crap. Yeah. I'm going to do the opposite. Joe Biden says the the um, the Russians are mounting forces on the border of Ukraine. No, they're not. The Russians say the, – the Biden administration says the Russians are going to invade. Pfft, warmongering. You're an idiot. You, you got it completely wrong. And the reason I, I bring up this particular one – there are other examples of this. Um, and the, the, you know, the extreme example is Joe Rogan. I mean, Joe Rogan, the extreme example is um, Alex Jones. Uh, but like I, the reason I brought up the, the Russia-Ukraine one is one of these uh, listeners reached out to me and he proposed three guests. He said, you know, I haven't heard you bring on these three people. And one of them was uh, Douglas McGregor, I believe his last name is. Another guy is Scott Ritter. And another guy is uh, – trying to remember what that guy's name was um, – can't remember off the top of my head, but I, I looked into all these guys. The only guy that actually didn't ring off my alarm bells, I didn't actually finish the Peter McCullough story, actually. The, the only guy that didn't ring, ring my alarm bells was this guy, Scott Ritter. Uh, but he also has a show on RT, or he's a col- he's a writer on RT, which is a big alarm bell. Uh, the other guys, they rang a bunch of alarm bells. Again, I'm going to put that aside a second. Let's go back to Peter McCullough. So what about Peter McCullough? It isn't because Peter McCullough was advocating for ivermectin. Again, my father told us when, when uh, COVID-19 happened, he got a bunch of hydroxychloroquine because he uses it. The The brand name, I think, is Plaquenil. He, use it, he uses it with his patients. It's an anticoagulant. It came with absolutely no risk. Some of the preliminary studies that he had seen suggest that it could be helpful in reducing inflammation. Um, in in covid uh in covid patients ivermectin i believe works in in similar ways i'm not against ivermectin but just watching um peter mccullough talk i realized this guy's not being scientific at all and i'm just now i'm just talking and talking but i feel like he, guys like mccullough guys like um uh jordan peterson you know a lot of these other folks there's a kind of cult 
there's a kind of cult following now on the right, whereas it used to – it felt like the right was taking – taking a sort of uh, contrarian viewpoint from the left, which had kind of gone over their skis in 2018 or whatever. Now I feel like the rights kind of coalesced around their cult leaders and they just follow people and they just, they've got cult issues now. It's the vaccines, uh, masks, uh, Ukraine, Joe Biden's corruption. And they're just kind of drone. They're just become like drone minded. And, and it's just, it's become very clear to me because I, I, I see it also as a content creator I've noticed that, that kind of hive mind. Sorry for going on and on. I don't know no, if that was useful. No, it's fine. So I, I want to dig into that a little bit. I'm really curious. Um, what about, from your perspective, and I'm sure these are these these have been conversations you've had with your dad. What, what about McCullough uh, did you did, did you think find unscientific? Like I'm, I, I kind of I, I want you to express uh, yeah. your opinion. I just I want to hear what you sure. think. Sure. I didn't actually. I don't think I actually talked to him about this. Um, I, I do I do believe I, I heard Peter Atia uh kind of debunk some of his stuff and I'd have to go back and re-listen to it. I, I um you know when you listen to so many people like I do as if you listen to as many people as I have over the years and you've listened to them across multiple disciplines and in, in, you've had to do episodes where you bring on people in those various disciplines and you have to understand their argument well enough to be able to bridge some of the divide between your audience and what they're saying and help add value. I think you be, you develop a detector, mm-hmm. you know, oh, and yeah. I think I have a pretty strong detector and I have a pretty strong sense of when you are saying something that you don't know whether it's true or not or whether you're kind of overextending yourself or whether you're making an emotional argument or whether you're actually open or interested in hearing what other people have to say. And, um, you know, I've just gotten to a point in my life with my show and and what I do where, like, sometimes there are going to be people, you know, probably a good example is Mark Cahotis. It's probably a good example of someone who may superficially come off that way because he's so uh, sure and he's so morally self-assured and everything else. But, you know, he's got a track record that shows that he's had some success in doing that. And so maybe um, and so like my, my point is that just because someone might come across a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that they're full of. Sh- they might just be that they really, really, really uh, are onto something. You know, and uh, that's why they're not really uh, trying to sort of hedge their bets. But for the most part, I'm you know those people tend to be just not people that you want to trust. Again, I'm not bringing. I'm I'm using Mark as the counterfactual to be clear. Uh, But yeah, I mean, um, humility is such an important thing, and when it comes to medicine and science, that's like a core part of it. So if you're a doctor coming on and you want me to take you seriously about the risks associated with this or that, and vaccines, another example, like I've always thought that there were risks associated with the vaccines. These are novel vaccines. Um, I did not rush to take them. I ended up taking them after consulting with a lot of people and making a decision, weighing the risk and reward of doing so. I did not take the booster to the vaccines because of, again, stuff that I read and judging that it it didn't make sense. I also got the baseline immunity that I wanted from the initial dosages and uh, familiarized my body with the, the virus. Um, and 
yeah, I, you know, I kind of lost my train of thought there. Well, no, but this is a this is a perfect jumping off point. And I didn't even have it on my list of things that I wanted to discuss with you, but I think that this is kind of <laughs> I think the whole vaccination situation uh, or, or the whole drama surrounding it, right? The, 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 I, I think it's a perfect uh, oh, summation. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, and I don't want to choose your trance. This is what I wanted to say. But it's an important example. Uh, you know, and, and, and I, I, it's again, like, I can't, I have to uh, outsource the due diligence on things like this to doctors. Mm-hmm. I can't take, I can't do it myself, right? But like, for example, the, the, the VARS database and the um, higher incidence of, um, of adverse events that are unexplained that we see in the database. I haven't heard anyone explain to me why we should feel confident that that's primarily vaccine driven or that it isn't primarily driven by the fact that we had this novel virus that entered the population and that's caused all sorts of adverse long-term consequences. So, you know, I think, again, I haven't spent a lot of time looking into it, but um, I, I don't, I don't trust the epistemic, uh, due diligence of the hive mind when yeah. it comes to this stuff. Put it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, because it's only as good as the inputs, right? And and I don't care how many quote unquote brilliant people batted around back and forth. You know, when you're when when you're operating under assumptions, or you're yeah, I'm with you 100. percent Look, you and I in finance, man. It sounds like you and I had the same um, framework that led us astray when it came to understanding the monetary plumbing of the financial system during the financial crisis. You know, I had – I was uh, I was someone that uh, trashed my Keynesian, uh, uh, Samuelsonian, neo-equilibrium economic models that I learned in school because they didn't make any sense and I started studying Austrian economics. And so when the crisis came, I was able to see the crisis coming because I had a I had a strong sense of the business cycle, but I didn't understand modern money, the modern monetary system. And you and I saw tons of people that were making the rounds at that time that are still making the rounds, making the same stupid hyperinflation arguments and have never actually changed their opinions. But at the time, there was a sense, at least by me, like, oh, these guys are smart. The authorities are idiots. All those guys, the PhDs, well, they just don't understand it. They're just stupid, which is a really stupid remedial take that I had, which is like, oh, yeah, I'm so smart. I just figured this out. And these guys that are are out there, they're just kind of like laying it out. Um, and mansplaining shit, those guys are really smart. And all those other guys out there, they're just dumb. Yeah. You know, and like yeah. that mentality persists and it persists now with the same area and, you know, in economics, but it also persists with the virus, which is, oh, yeah, all these guys are just idiots, you know? Um, I know what's up. Yeah. Well, idiot- I know what's up. I'm going to take my colloidal silver. <laughs> I'm going to take my ivermectin. The vaccines are just a scam. Um, forget the fact that Pfizer's uh, CEO. And a board member, also the other guy um, who was on my show, um, Scott Gottlieb, that both of them, at least by their own stated uh, statements, not only have taken the vaccine, but have given it to their children. So unless they're lying, um, it's a little bit more complicated. Again, it totally could be we totally may find out that we were better off not taking it. But uh, it's not that simple. It's not like I, I'm not convinced by that this is some kind of conspiracy and it's just there to make money because then why are they taking it too? No, I, I – um, it's funny you said you take people off. I'm always careful coming around this topic because 
Um, I've given up because I've already lost a lot. Of, I've already lost most of those people. Yeah, and, and and whatever. I feel like if you're trying to play it down the middle and really understand what's going on, and and um, I, I I know you've very much gone down the same path, similar to me in terms of you know you just discussed the financial path, understanding the monetary system, but also understanding people. And one of the things I've learned throughout my life. Is that it? It's so rarely a doctor evil in a cave somewhere, twisting his mustache and coming up with his evil plot, right? It, most people are operating, believing that they are doing the best or attempting to do the best. Now that that doesn't have any bearing on the outcome. It doesn't mean those people with good right uh, road to hell is paved with good intentions. But I was we, we were having a discussion regarding the vaccine last night, and one of my takes on it has been. Look, I, I think the reason this type of vaccine, now again, I'm not a doctor. I don't come from a medical background family, so I'll, I'll run this by you and see what you think. But my take on it was I think that this type of vaccine was used because it was the fastest way to get a vaccine to market. And I think, you know, I, I think the people involved admittedly and said at the time that, you know, we don't really know all of the ins and outs. I, I, you know, I don't I don't think that they were as open about their doubts about it as they probably should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think giving immunity to the f- big pharma companies that were putting it out. I don't think that was a conspiracy. I don't think they could have brought something to market. They, they would have been irresponsible to bring something to market that fast had they not had that that cover. Right. Um so I don't think that there was a – I don't think that there was a big conspiracy. I don't think that this vaccine was designed by Bill Gates in a lab somewhere to eliminate a third of the population. The problem I've had with it, though, is the complete pushback against anything else. Again, with so many other things, I sit there and I look at the extremes on both sides, and I see so much real estate in the middle, right, that no, nobody's there. Um I took the vaccine as well. I didn't want to just because I looked at all the risks in the data and I just didn't think that I had any. I'm in shape. I'm 40 years old. I've never had any medical problems whatsoever. Healthy guy, eat healthy, vitamins, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, But I had to take it for business travel and I am not, you know, I wasn't horrified taking it. I don't want it in my kids just because I don't think that they have any real risk to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the data bears that out. And it, but, but so going over to a guy like Scott Gottlieb, who from my estimation is a guy trying to get it right. That's what he seems like to me. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I just got to play it like it is, but it does surprise me that a guy like that would give it to his kids. I just don't understand the case mm-hmm. for it. Right. Um, yeah. so, so lo- looking at, looking at that side of it, what, what, what is your, Again, I don't buy the conspiratorial side, but I also completely do not understand, you know, the best way to survive the hurricane in Florida is by getting a vaccine, right? (laughs) Getting your kids back. I I don't understand that side of it. The the conspiratorial side of it, I have an easier time understanding it because maybe it's because I come from a more conservative background and so I'm more sympathetic to that take. Yeah. I, don't, I don't agree with it, but I understand it. I have a tougher time understanding the 
you know, Sean Penn recently said we should we should put people in jail that aren't getting vaccinated. Right? He's an idiot. Oh my god! Yeah, and now so disappointing. Yeah, and then now Pfizer approving it for use for children under five. I don't understand that. I don't. Listen, listen. I'm with you, man. I don't understand that either. Again, maybe Scott Gottlieb is making it up. Maybe he actually hasn't given it to his kids. I don't know. I mean, that would be that would be really surprising if he would have gone that way. But I'm not. uh, I'm. I also. I'm not. uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't know if his kids have taken it. what he said. At least that's what I think he said. But you got to take, uh, take him people... at face value. I mean, I, I, yeah, I believe yeah, him. Sure, 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 sure. I don't know why people would give it to their kids. Uh, like I said, I didn't even get a booster. I think it's for someone like me. I think it's crazy to get a booster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they, they said so many things that were wrong. Like one of the things that that came out early on, early, early on from uh, the CDC or, or one of these bodies was that Somehow, vaccine immunity was better than than natural immunity, and I was like, "Huh? That's never been the case. Where, where, where is this coming from?" There was tons of misinformation that was coming out of these these major bodies. So everyone should be absolutely skeptical and not 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 necessarily trust anything that they say. Um, so, to, so, you know, so, so to that point, I don't mean to cut you off, but yeah. what I again, I'm trying to find. I'm always looking at situations, and I've learned to do this, and I hear you do it all the time. Jumping to the extreme conspiratorial side of it, we have a saying here at Bulwark, we don't do conspiracies because they don't pay well, right? So, and, yeah. and, and, and I just – they're rabbit holes. You just get lost there. But, yeah. what I, but what I do not understand is what was the motivation to make that ridiculous statement that anybody that knows anything about medicine would sit there and go, wait a second. There's nothing better than natural immunity. That's no. right. That's the gold standard. I can't get my head around what motivated that. You know um... – I don't know corruption, uh, you know, uh, power hungry, uh, um, living in a bubble. I mean, I truly don't know that they botched it so badly. Uh, you know, like I, I don't know, man. Like I, like I said, I, I don't, um, I don't think people are wrong to distrust the the authorities. I just, I just think that what what I'm seeing with COVID, with Twitter, with all these different – look at these conservatives all of a sudden flocking to conservatives. Again, these terms don't even apply. But these, you know, whatever, these, quote, new right people flocking to Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. You know, like you're look, – what are you doing? Why are you worshiping this guy? Like that's not very – it's not very manly. It's not very macho. You know what I mean? And uh, it's not very woke of you in, right. in the non-liberal sort of, again, new right sense – uh, what this billionaire is, he's like hitting, ticking all the right boxes, but the other billionaire is trying to stick your kids with needles. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, um, I don't know, that 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 sort of, that kind of brainless thing is just, uh, I don't know, man. It's, um, and as far as, look, listen, as far as the, again, I, I have not put in the time to really, assess the claims that I see people making peripherally about mRNA technology. What I do know is that when I read up on mRNA technology, I found it really promising and exciting. And uh, so, you know, I hope it works out long term because it does exactly what you described it. Among other things, it it allows people it allows us to create uh, novel vaccines to target novel viruses very quickly and presumably other types of drugs. So, there's a whole frontier there in medicine, uh, and yet no one wants to be the guinea pig for it. And so, look, um, 
I don't know, man. I mean, try, there was something that was coming to mind when I was we were talking earlier. Alex Jones came to my mind again, and I'm forgetting why he came up. But there was something that I wanted to say anyway. I forgot. I forgot about it. So yeah, no worries. No, the uh, <clears throat> yeah, this this I think this is kind of a good jumping off point to discussing the Federal Reserve um, because I. Look, I, I think that any market observer knows I, – I think it's hard to make the argument that central banks have not been the biggest driver uh, economically and financially over this entire cycle, right? I think that getting the central bank side of it right um, – and as a guy that, that does this on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, I, I, I just know this to be true. Uh, getting the central bank side of things correct has been the key, to performance, right? To being on the right side of it. Um, and I think a similar setup exists on the central bank side. I think there's a lot of debate and a lot of um, back and forth that mirrors a lot of what we've already discussed, right? You have the people, and I used to be one of them, and I still am to a certain degree. I, I'm not a fan of the modern central banker. That being said, I also don't view them in the same um, – light or with intense negativity and disdain that I probably did seven years ago because somebody asked me a question that I thought was really poignant and they said, uh, what would you do if you were in their shoes? And I thought about it and I went, I'd probably be doing exactly what they're doing, right? I, 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 I hate the fact that we're in this position where we quote unquote need them to do this. Um, I don't like the way they go about doing it, yet I understand the motivations. And um, uh, trying to figure out where we go from here, I, I, just, I think there's so much mirrored by what's going on in financial markets and central bankers to what's going on in society, right? Meaning we know that this these paths are unsustainable, and it appears to me that – we can we're we're starting to be able to see the end of that path, right? Where um, you just look at the pace of intervention, the size of intervention, right? And it's going exactly the way you'd think. Why right? one intervention begets another, and and it requires constant intervention to maintain altitude. And one of the ways we've looked at it is if you pull the intervention going from the level the altitude that you're flying back down to quote-unquote normal, free market, right? Just that de- descending down to normal becomes a cataclysmic event, right? Like a, a, a depressionary-style event. Um, how, do you, how do we wrestle with that? How do you – what is your take on what we're seeing from central banks and the path forward? Again, I, we don't need to get down into the weeds of it. That's one yeah. of the reasons I wanted to have you on was looking at that global side of it. But what is your take on what central bank activity, you know, where we're headed? Because we all know, I think, inherently that this is unsustainable, right? Now, I think if you don't, you're not looking at the numbers. Where do we go from here? Are you a fan? What is your take on the Federal Reserve and their increased presence and role in markets that just seems to be getting larger and larger by the day? How How do we rationalize that as investors and human beings? And where do we go from here? It's practically impossible for the Fed or the government to fix the problem that the the problems that they're in the the situation they're in. So you can just think of it in the simplest terms possible. If you are for for the the economy, the political economy, and society is a complex, dynamic system. 
with tons of individual agents with different incentives. Now, let's just take one individual who's overweight. There's only one individual here. He's fully in charge of his body. Um, there's only one set of incentives. This person wants to lose. This person does not want to be fat. Mm-hmm. This person wants to be in great shape. He wants to look like Sylvester Stallone. I was watching Co- Cobra clips of Cobra last <laughs> night. I was like, man, that guy was just like. So I remember when jacked. I was, yeah, so jacked. Now, when I remember when I was a kid, I was like, man, I want to be jacked like that. You know, I'm gonna be like that. Um, Were you a fan of the Rocky movies? I was a fan of all that shit. Yeah, yeah. I was Are a we... fan of all that kind of stuff, man. I was a fan of Van Damme. Oh, yeah. I was a fan of. I was a fan of um, what's his name, um, Steven Seagal. Oh yeah. Uh, um, you know, I was a fan of all that badass stuff, man. Yeah, I we, loved we, that stuff. We, I, we, I'd watch the Rocky movies, and especially in the training montages, we'd have to, we'd have to pause it, and I'd have to, I'd, I'd go into my own training montage. I'd have my dad hold a pillow, you know, I'm doing body shots. I'd get so juiced, you know what I mean? I just, I, I would wanted train to, be Rocky. to. Oh yeah, I, tr- I trained to the Rocky soundtrack. So did I. That's, that, that's what I trained to, man. So did you know, I. when I started lifting weights as a teenager. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I got it for early. Christmas. I got it for Christmas. I asked for it. I was training for football, and I I would jog and do my do my uh, cardio to that soundtrack. Yeah. yeah, my favorite song was the. I don't think I don't know if this was the name of it. The No Easy Way Out. Oh yeah, that was that was my favorite song, man. I loved it. I think that's the one where he in the music video is driving a, a Lamborghini Countach. Li- yep. Yeah, the white one. Uh, yeah, the white Lamborghini Countach. Yeah, yeah. You can tell um, I've seen it a few times. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, so yeah, brought up Sylvester Stallone. Remember how that we were came talking up. about the Fed, right? Uh, the Central Fed, banks, right, right, right. Yeah. So let's say you want to get into you want to get in shape. How people struggle, mm-hmm. you know, people have a really hard time doing what they know they need to do. What do they need to do to lose weight? Exercise, eat healthy, you know, get more sleep. People struggle to do those things, even though they know that that's what they need to do to get what they want. Um, and so. I just think the way I look at it is it's just not po- – it's impossible for this for this to be – for the government. To, this is – there's a different set of incentives that drives this train and it's going to drive us it, – It's I always look for what is the easiest um, – the path of least resistance politically. And that's what I always look for and that, that inevitably leads to what the outcomes are going to be. Yep. So my sense of where we're going here uh, – and again, this is – I'm not um, arrogant enough to – to say that this is where we're definitely going, but let's just let's just let's just kind of um, let's just pick this one example. I think that this is one possible outcome. Um, I think that the t- two thousand and eight, in a sense, quote broke something in the global financial system, and that the 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 Constant periods of QE um, now have led to – well, actually, let me step that back. I don't necessarily think that QE led to QT, but I think that you know we did all these series of QE. It didn't work, in, at, at least it didn't work in kind of um, rebalancing the economy. I think it exacerbated income inequality and wealth inequality. And I don't think QE is what's led to the inflation. I think uh, what's led to the inflation is – the fiscal spending that drove demand, which uh, the the economy coming out of the pandemic wasn't prepared to service, and so you had a lot of spike. You had spike in, in spikes in inflation in various sectors of the economy, 
And I think what's going to happen is we're going to move to a period, especially if we have a really bad recession, where the government's not going to now is going to step in, and we're going to begin to see the, uh, enter a new era of fiscal spending on a scale that we just haven't seen before. And we're going to increase the size. The size of government is going to become larger as a part of the economy, and the global international trade and globalization is going to continue to decline. Economies and political systems are going to turn inwards, and the risk there is that in that process, uh, various Western economies and political systems become more autarkic. Uh, pop. You know, elect the electorate elects people that are you know strongmen, uh, people that are more dictatorial. You can already see the appeal of authoritarianism, whether it is uh, people's the way that people like the way that Trump talks. A huge uh, percentage of the American base of the electorate really uh, responds to that kind of that kind of attitude. Same thing with Musk; they really like that that kind of attitude. The kind of they also like the. Sticking it to the to the man, sticking it to the corrupt elite, uh, because there is so much of a sense of kind of like the system is corrupt, burn it the f down. So I, I think, and then there's also the geopolitical uh, landscape and the risk that this leads the, the the all these elements lead to further conflict. That's what I worry about. That's kind of one possible place where this goes as a result of these unresolved issues. And the fact that it is true that um, a small, smaller number of people have really benefited from the system as it is now and have accumulated a lot of wealth, and uh, they're not incentivized to change things or they're incentivized to protect things. So until – but we might see some demagogue come into power. It doesn't have to be someone on the right. It could be someone on the left, but someone who's demagogic and who uh, – Working with the government is able to change laws in a particular way in order to benefit his or her interest groups. I don't know. I mean, it's as 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 uh, as this as the situation progresses, I think we'll we'll have a better idea of um, of what happens. Yeah, you know? I, I was fascinated by the interview you did recently with Michael Howell because I thought he made a statement that I could not agree with more. Um, and he was talking about the role that he saw the Fed and central banks playing going forward in the, in the new year. And he made a statement that really, really got my mind spinning. And he said, I think the Fed is going to try to have their cake and eat it too, right? Talking about when he was referencing uh, continuing to jack up rates to tackle inflation yeah. while also uh, expanding the balance sheet. Yeah. Right. And I, I, don't, I don't see how he's wrong. I don't see any way out of totally. it. Um, I completely agree that. QT is temporary in nature. Um, the, just the sheer the sheer size of debt issuance will require quantitative easing just to keep right. If you don't have that, you're just going to continue to see the, what we saw in the gilt market in, in England. I mean, it's just and and we were actually I was talking about this a few years back. I had Luke Groman on a show, and I ran that scenario by him because I I'd, I'd been looking at this for a while and I thought. Um, I thought that interest rates going up would require quantitative easing. And a lot of people at the time kind of – it was kind of one of those things that I came up with where I thought, you know what? Maybe I'm way off. I just don't see how you can accumulate that much debt, start raising rates. 
I mean, just think of the pressure it puts on pension funds. Totally. The hole is too big at this point. And that's kind of what I was referencing earlier is that getting back to a truly fair market or, or a real market, right, where price discovery is everything, it's – it, it, it that alone does too much damage. And so I just figured quantitative easing was something that had to keep going. But what does scare me is this game of economic whack-a-mole just keep, keeps being perpetuated, right? They're, they're continuing to put more fingers in the dike. And what scares me is at what point do we realize that it's not about plugging the holes? We've got a bad dike, right? We need to start addressing this because – what you see, they uh, you see central banks now intervening because of the ramifications of previous interventions. Do you know what I'm saying? So they're of not course, even, yeah. yeah, they're not even reacting to economic issues anymore. Now they're acting to the ramifications of their interventions. And mm-hmm. um, I I struggle to conceptualize or understand where we go from there. Right? Does it? Does it take- that's the hall of mirrors, man. Look, that's where the Chinese are. They're further along there, right? Because they started further along. They're not a market-based economy. But that's what we're moving towards. And my my grave concern is that uh, we we do we just you know you that you and I when we're older and we pass away. My greatest concern is that we 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 pass away again. Hopefully, we're older and we pass away. Yeah. Um, that we pass away in a in, a, in an America that's uh, that looks. Very different and is much more uh, – much less free market oriented. And that's perfectly possible. That could become kind of the the path of least resistance because, you know, the, what, it's hard to walk that back. It's just very difficult to walk that back as we've been seeing. Um, but again, I, I, you know, there's so many things that we can't account for. So I'm not, I'm not pessimistic because I just recognize how ignorant I am. But I, my, but I feel very confident about what I see right now and what is going to cont- what I think is going to happen if we don't, if something doesn't change. Um, yeah, that's you know that's how I kind of see it. So going forward in the next year, and to, to sum it up, I've already soaked up a bunch of your time. But to kind of tie this up here, uh, again referencing the interview you did with Michael Howell, who I think I think it's an interview everybody should go listen to. Um, I'm looking out, and today. Michael Howell is also one of our. Uh, uh, one of our regular contributors on our genius tier, you know, so he comes on uh, once every couple of months to sit down with me to go through his latest reports. And uh, we have we have a very long extended conversation. And then our members get to ask him questions that we have these kind of roundtable conversations, which, you know, I mean, I've been a huge beneficiary of being able to talk to him and not just on those calls, but I get to call him, you know, and chat with him every now and then. And he's been very helpful. Yeah. You know? No, it's, it's, it, was, it was fascinating. And I really agreed with his layout. I, I've been saying for a while now, so it's no new star listeners, but I find this debate about recession or not recession, I find it extraordinarily trite. Um, and in my – now, it, look, I could be proven wrong. I just think it's – I mean – <laughs> the trajectory seems pretty clear to me, right? And, and I'm looking at it and going, I think this is all about trying to understand the intensity and the duration uh, as opposed to if it's going to happen or not. But I wanted to get your take on it. Um, and then I'll, I'll put this other aside. When I look at where we're headed and I look at the problems that we're facing economically, one of my fears is I, I, 
I again, I couldn't agree with Michael more because of what I think central banks' reactions will be to this. Right? I don't think this is the beginning of some great depression because I think central banks will answer with eventually they're going to have to choose between higher than desired inflation rates or uh, or the alternative, which the alternative is untenable, and I don't think anybody is willing to accept that. Um, but my fear is is that, again, there's too many fingers in the dike and that we may just be right around the corner from a scenario which that intervention doesn't work for some reason. Um, but what? It, but that's my take. My listeners hear yeah. that all the time. How do you view the world, the, the year ahead from your lens? Um, just because I get tired of listening to just the financial takes and like you and I were joking about people being so self-congratulatory about their brilliance. I, I just – I wanted to hear your take on the road ahead f- financially and, and in the investment world and finance going forward because I, I do expect a lot of fireworks next year. Yeah, so this is another area where – you know, the, here's the, the approach that I take as an investor. I think I have a very good fr- macro framework mm-hmm. and I think it's gotten better and better over, over the years because I try to take a radical uh, – you know, open-minded perspective to reforming it and improving it. Where I struggle as an investor is how to uh, take actionable steps to capture outcomes that are closely aligned with that and also like what to buy specifically. Like that's not what I'm really good at. And so what I try and do is uh, speak to as many people that are smart as possible and um, – you know, make make decisions in a kind of when it comes to like, you know, what I think is going to happen and and stuff like that. Um, I try to crowdsource as much of that information as possible. So um, I'll I'll give you what I think. Um, my my sense is that we really we're really reaching the upper bounds of what we can do with these rate hikes. Um, it, it again from the people I speak to and uh, the guys the folks I follow. It seems like we've already done more than enough to contribute to to causing a recession. Um, again, there are actually I just had Jeff Snyder on actually just before I jumped on with you. It was the first time I was speaking with Jeff, and you know Jeff's point of view is that the economy was already pointing towards recession before the Fed even began the rate hiking cycle. So um, that the in other words that the that the that the inflation was going to cause the recession, that the cure for higher prices was higher prices. Right. Um, so. I uh I I'm definitely bracing for a recession. Uh I have I think we've talked about this last time. I, mean, I, I don't know if this is exactly your question. Are you ask? I mean, do you want to know how I'm trying to approach it as an investor? Because that's kind of, yeah. and that's kind of the the best way for me. To, that's the kind of the best way for me to respond. The reason being that otherwise, you know, trying to respond to saying like what I'm doing kind of focuses and keeps me a little honest. Yeah. As opposed to maybe kind of just thinking airy fairy. Um, you know, of course, I don't know. So I've I. Uh, I had the opportunity to take significant risk off the table in late 2021, and I've been, um, you know, summer of 2021 and fall of 2021, and that was great. That was a great trade, and I've had, um, you know, relatively speaking, a large cash position. I began to deploy that position beginning in the summer, um, both in defensive equities and in um, oil and oil 
and oil equity ETFs at really good prices, um, but still it was mostly cash. I, I deployed again uh, very recently. Um, was the second time again, not a little bit in defensive equities, but mostly, almost entirely in in, in six month U.S. Treasuries, and uh, began to nibble at high yield debt. And um, you know, I'm kind of going to be now looking to deploy increasingly as we go. Again, I, I people that I speak to are very; they think high yield debt and private debt looks interesting uh, at at these levels, we're starting to get to a good phase. Um, and I just want to be liquid to try to take advantage of opportunities. And that's kind of how I, I have, again, I, I think that there's a lot of downside risk. And, um, but at the same time, I don't, you know, Mike Green, for example, when we were on a panel to get one, not we were on a panel together, I was moderating a panel that he was on at the NYSC over the summer. And his advice at that time, when I sort of said, well, you know, if you if you're because like I'm the kind of person that I don't want to be actively managing a portfolio. What I want to do is I want to be invested in long term trends and not really think about it too much. And that's actually kind of what I'm trying to achieve with this stage of my investing. And so what I said, you know, like for someone like me who wants to kind of set it, forget it, you know, but I don't want to be invested in index funds. Um because I don't that's not what I want to be in right now. So he's like oh, he goes I would be I would be buying 10-year treasuries. And he was actually look, he might be proven correct cuz the 10-year was over 4% at that time. Mike believes that we're not going to have long-term inflation. I think that we're going to have inflation because I think the government is going to engage in fiscal spending and that that's going to drive it. I believe Jeff um Snyder agrees with Mike Green. They have the same kind of view. So Man, oh, man. I mean, look, I guess what I'm really saying to you, Zach, is that uh, I think the only way that you can be a responsible investor or responsible person is to really be – is to really stress out over every decision, be as patient as possible, uh, really kind of work things over, be incredibly humble, and and hopefully you can survive. And that's how I try to do it. Uh, I see how many smart people – again, Russell Napier is a brilliant guy. He takes the opposite side of Mike Green, takes the opposite side of Jeff Snyder. Um, uh, David Rosenberg's over with those guys. Um, you know, anyway, there are tons of smart people that are in opposite positions. So I'm always trying to I'm always trying to do my best, and uh, and I never put all my chips on one side of the table. Yeah, no, that's good. And and the funny, the other thing too is I think that there's a perception issue where I think sometimes we as investors see those guys and say, oh, they disagree. I think a lot of it is just time frame too, right? So, because mm-hmm. I, I agree with both of them, the largest position in my portfolio that I manage for our clients uh, is uh, ten and twenty year treasuries, um, and we started buying those about sixty days ago. Ten year was above four percent at that time. Timing was lucky; I top ticked it. Um, mm-hmm. Just I thought it'd get above four; it did, and so so far it's gone my way. But I don't see it as a long term hold either. I think that there's going to be a deflationary wave, and I think, like you said, we know what the playbook is, right? We know what they're going to do. We've seen it enough times over the course of 15 years. When that deflationary wave hits, it's going to be Katie bar the door. Um, You know, they're going to do whatever they have to to re-stimulate, and I've kind of thought that that to me will be the jumping off point for Hmm. real long-term inflation. So. Yeah, I, I agree with both of them. Yeah, just to me, it's the timing issue. Um, That's a great point. Also, I'm also uh, not a dollar bear. 
I'm not I'm not one of those people that thinks that uh you want to get out of the dollar because it's going to go to it's going to go to, you know. I was going to curse again. I didn't curse during this interview, did I? No, man. Did I avoid cursing? No, you've been like I've a, avoided it. You've been like a choir <laughs> you've been like a choir guy, you know, right? Just a choir kid. Yeah. No, I'm you know, I, I'm I'm yeah. with you, I'm with you, but 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 I think that but I think that you're in my opinion and t- tell me if I'm wrong. I, I think you're not a dollar bear because you've studied the system, right? Yeah, I have a lot, and I've done a ton of episodes on it that are out there for the public. You know? Yeah, and and I, I, I you referenced it earlier the, the the perennial dollar bears, the Peter Schiffs of the world. Again, I'm not trying to throw yeah. shade at anybody. I just sit there and look at him and go, at what point do you, what point do you reexamine your thesis? Because he's exhaust. God, he's exhausting. I've interviewed Peter. I know Peter. He, he, he you can't, you can't have a conversation with huh. Peter. It's impossible. He's the perfect example of like, he, he's not a good faith interlocutor. No. He only wants to push his agenda, and that's just there's nothing interesting to learn there. No. You know, good luck with that. It, it definitely helps you sell books. It helps you generate podcast views. And the reality is that. There's a business there, and it's a great business, which is why you shouldn't take financial advice from newsletter people. <laughs> right. They're trying to sell They're, newsletters. Exactly. Their right. incentives aren't aligned with good portfolio performance. Right. No, and I've seen the performance coming out of that place, um, and it isn't pretty, right? So <laughs> – and, and again, I'm not trying to throw shade, man. I've had tough years too. No, look, too. man. You got to – listen, dude. Listen. You know what I've also realized, Zach? You got to be brutally honest in this business too. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, you just got to be. You got to be honest. Like, if you, someone wants to go out there and take a position, great. Like, it's nothing personal, Peter. Like, you know, I'm not. I'm not attacking Peter, uh, but uh, you have to like. You got to hold people accountable. You know what? Like, if I'm going to spend all my days hedging my bets and saying, "Ooh, I don't know," and you know, I got to be. Listen, I'm not an expert, but someone else is presenting himself as an expert 24 seven. You know, like he's got to be held accountable. He's not, he's not going to hold himself accountable for being on the wrong side of a trade for 15 years. But, you know. Um, they should. They should. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to our clients and saying in 2013, 2014, hey, guys, I've, I've gotten this wrong. And here are the reasons why. And we're going to make these changes in the portfolios um, because we need to. And I've been wrong. And let's get right. Right. And let's- it's great. It's 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 a. Uh, it's free. It's such. It's so freeing for me oh, yeah. to always like you know state up front. Hey, look, I'm not an expert. Blah blah blah. This and that. It relieves me of the burden of carrying around this false sense of assuredness and expertise because you know, like, it allows me to make mistakes, and through making mistakes, I can get closer to what the truth is. Yeah, that's because I, I don't want to lose money. No, no. Money. And 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 to go, the way that I explain that same thing that you're talking about with these guys is, and I've explained it to our, to our clients. I go, guys, their business is selling certainty where there's none to be had, right? We, it, it, the, I, and I, I joke with our people all the time. The only person you shouldn't listen to is the one that knows exactly how it's going to play out because nobody does. And stay on your toes. Stay nimble. You know, my dad um, introduced me to the financial newsletter industry because in 1999 – well, it was 1999 that I started to read The Daily Reckoning because he was reading it and he loved it. And it was very funny and Bill Bonner's a great writer. But it was in the late 90s that my dad started – like a lot of these guys that are very successful, uh, self-made people, they start making some money and they start looking for what to do with it. They've never had the problem before of having made money. They don't know how to invest it, what to do. So they go out looking and they hear the newsletter people. And by the way, when I say this also, like I'm, a, I'm someone that is in the content business, so I'm not disparaging the business in general. Um, I'm, I'm, but I, but of course, like there are various. Uh, 
degrees of this in the in this business. Like, look, dude, I, you know, have you ever stumbled on these these newsletter things where, like, let's say you click on a link in Twitter and you end up on a page and there's a guy with a video and he's talking and he's using words that are scary and there's a link underneath and you just click on the link and it puts you to another. It's like if you click on this link, it gives you the answer, and then eventually you find yourself putting your credit card in. Right. You know, I followed these rabbit holes to see how it works. This is a this is a highly efficient systematized uh like scheme that like preys on your anxieties and your 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 need for assurances so that's kind of the extreme end of it but the bottom line is like anyway i learned about all this stuff because my dad went down this rabbit hole and he spent years um learning how to invest his money and he developed he had the wrong framework insofar as what do i mean he learned a lot about the economy but nowhere in that process did the people that he was following or reading really tell him the larger thing was like, hey, dude, first of all, you're not an expert in this. You know, so like the, 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 the two most important things in, in investing are portfolio construction and risk management. That's not what they told him. Right. What they told him was like, this is a really good – there's going to be a crash and you want to be positioned, blah, blah, blah. It's like that and you know, it's constantly selling the story. So um, – yeah, I don't know how I got on that roadmap, but um, no, no, yeah, I think it's destructive. You know? No, it is, man, and that's a that's a perfect it's wealth destroying. Yeah, it is, <laughs> it is, and you know, especially from our firm's angle, we talk about risk management all the time, and I I tell people I go, look, this isn't a marketing ploy, right? If I, if I if my if my goal was to get as many listeners as possible and get as many clients as possible. I wouldn't be on here talking about risk management, right? I'd be, hey, we have the secret. We've got the knowledge. You got to come with us. Where my approach is, hey, this is crazy times and there are really no historical comps. We got to stay on our toes, keep our head on a swivel. We got to manage risk and exposure. And rather than jumping on a train and refusing to leave, our job is to kind of wait on the corner and see which train, you know, which train go- comes out of the station first and get on the right one as quick as possible. Knowing that you know, most likely it won't be right at the beginning, right? Yeah. You know, I was talking to my dad about this last night, actually, uh, now that we mention it. And I was saying, you know, the kind of way that I think about it is it's like athletics. You know, when you're at the pinnacle of a sport uh, and you're playing, you know, in the NBA finals or you're playing in the playoffs, uh it's just as important – like you're talking about the smallest changes to your training schedule and to how you approach the game can be the difference between success and failure. Yeah. But if you're like Michael Jordan and they put you on some like, some like JV court, you could do the stupidest shit in the world every single day and crush it. And that's – you know I think what's happened is markets have become so efficient that it has become very difficult to be like – to, to really be to exploit the, those kind of edges, but you did see that in crypto. You know, a lot of people went over to crypto and they made a fortune yeah. shearing the sheep, and good for them. You know, but like uh, in the kind of markets that exist today, trying to do that is a fool's errand. That's been my experience. I agree with you, pal. I agree with you. That's why all we can do is just manage the risk and the exposure, right? Um, okay, so in closing here, I want to push, and, and really, again, no, no sunshine pumping, but for all of our listeners, you're going to be smarter, more well-informed people if you uh, subscribe to the podcast. So so lay it out for the folks. What is the – I mean, I, I am a paid subscriber, uh, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not blowing yeah, smoke Yeah, no, here. I appreciate it, man. Look, I, I, it's very kind of you to, 
to I, and I know you believe those things that you're saying. I'm not saying it. You're just saying that. But no, I mean, I, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Hidden Forces has three content tiers. We don't, first of all, we don't take sponsors or advertisers. We have a basic uh, subscription tier, which is the audiophile subscription, which is $15 a month. And that gives you access to all our premium content. Now, the way this works is most of our podcasts, the first hour is free. The second hour is behind a paywall. We also do premium-only releases where the entire thing is behind a paywall. In some cases, those remain always behind a paywall. In other cases, we release them at, late, at a later date. We have a second tier where you get all of that plus transcripts. And up until now, we, you would also get in these things called intelligence reports, which were documents that were curated uh, lists of information, links, uh, things like this. We're replacing this with a basic video that um, involves me and kind of giving um, my listeners take a takeaway of the episode, kind of what I learned from it. We recently launched the Genius Tier, which I've, I, I, it's something that I've really um, enjoyed doing. It's been a ton of work, but it uh, it is at its core a community using an online platform where I, people I'm able to leverage leverage my network of peak performers and really successful folks to get to know one another and uh, and gain investment opportunities from each other, but also do all these live Q and A's like the kinds I'm talking about with Michael Howell. Guys like Rory Johnston, Eric Bazmajian. Um We recently uh, brought the guys from uh, China Beige Book and Leland Miller who are going to be coming on and giving us regular updates on Chinese economic data. So I'm trying to build basically something akin to a continuous learning, a, conti- a continuing education experience. And uh, and that's the genius tier, and, and that's kind of how my business runs, you know? Um no, so. and, and and then the folks can also follow you on Twitter at, at @cofinus. Um, again, guys, can't recommend it enough. Dimitri, I really appreciate you coming on and doing this, and uh, we're going to have to get you on again next year and kind of see how things have played out. Right? Whoa, yeah. we'll have to revisit this conversation, Zach. Listen, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Hey, you bet. All right, you guys, that is it. Uh, and this is actually our last interview and show of the year, so have a wonderful New Year's. Hope you had a great Christmas. And we'll catch you again in 2023. As always, thank you for listening. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested in directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor.